Today's show is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Start learning about topics ranging from music to health and many more. Try it for free by visiting thegreatcoursesplus.com slash quiet. I'm Susan Cain, and this is Quiet, the Power of Introverts. Apologies, I have a little bit of a cold today, so you're probably going to hear that in my voice, but welcome. James, my younger son, from babyhood, is very, very anxious when any new person would come to the house. That's Priscilla Gilman. She's the mom of two introverted boys, Benjamin, who's 17, and James, who's 13. And he was a very clingy baby. He always wanted to be held. He didn't want to be away from me. But he was made very, very anxious by any new people coming to the house. Priscilla is the author of the book, The Anti-Romantic Child, a memoir of unexpected joy, and a frequent writer and speaker on parenting issues. When her son James started preschool, Priscilla realized that they were dealing with more than just first day of school nerves. He was hysterical the first day. And the school had a policy that if your child cried a lot, you were not allowed to leave the building in case they needed you. So my ex-husband and I were the last parents left in the building in the end of November. It's an experience any parent of a socially anxious child can relate to. Not all introverted kids are shy or have social anxiety, of course, but if your child does, you know that it can affect far more than school. In our very social world, it touches just about everything. But there's more to this kind of sensitivity than meets the eye. It turns out that the most sensitive kids, yes, are prone to all the anxieties and vulnerabilities that you would expect, but when they're raised in supportive, nurturing environments, they also have some of the best outcomes of all kids. There's fascinating new data on this. When it comes to health, peer relationships, academic outcomes, you name it, these kids often do better than their less sensitive peers. Scientists call them orchid children. They have more trouble when conditions are not ideal, but in the right environment, they really bloom. So what is the relationship between introversion, sensitivity, and social anxiety? And how can parents of all quiet kids benefit from the latest research on highly sensitive kids? Stay with us to find out. But first, how did Priscilla ever manage to leave her son's preschool? They came up with a lot of supportive rituals and routines to help him with that transition, waving to us, um, giving us a hug, settling down to work. It's a Montessori school, so they call it work, with his friend. um, And the hysterical fit of lying on the floor then became just crying, then became just tears, then became just, you know, a grimace. And then gradually, gradually he got acclimated. James made it over that particular hurdle. But of course, for a sensitive child, there are many situations that can trigger emotional distress. There are different brain systems that are, that are involved um, in this kind of behavior. That's Dr. Franklin Schneier, a research psychiatrist investigating social anxiety at New York State Psychiatric Institute and a professor at Columbia University. There's systems of uh, attention, so some people are more Uh, easily aware of threats in the environment. They're constantly focusing on threats and reacting and and processing threats in a a way that um, may lead to them being more inhibited, for example, than someone else who is not so focused on finding social threats, an angry face in a crowd, for example. This hypervigilance is something that Priscilla Gilman and her son James are all too familiar with. He would start to tear up as soon as he would see more than a couple of people in a space, Um, Never wanting to go in birthday parties, sitting outside, not wanting to go in, hiding under tables, uh, people coming up and trying to be friendly, and just starting to tremble. 
And he got a social anxiety diagnosis just in the last couple of years. That diagnosis has given James and Priscilla a framework to better deal with his anxieties. But a diagnosis doesn't answer why some children are more sensitive than others. Well, I don't think the the concepts of introversion, anxiety, um, and sensitivity to social context, I don't think those things can be entirely uh, separated. That's Dr. Thomas Boyce. The, the question then is, how do we get from sensitivity or introversion to anxiety uh, and things that, that we really would like to prevent and not have children experience? Boyce is professor of pediatrics and psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine, and he's been studying how stress affects the physical and mental health of children for over 30 years. Well, we started with preschoolers, so we were studying three- and four-year-olds, and <laughs> the way that adult uh, behavioral medicine specialists were measuring stress reactivity was to have adults stick their hand in a bucket of ice water and measure their blood pressure. Um, so we started by, you know, experimenting with, could we get three and four-year-olds to uh, stick their hand in a bucket of ice water? And of course, they wouldn't <laughs> and refused to do it. So we kind of went back to the drawing board. His team devised several tests to measure the stress response in the children, like having a stranger ask them questions about their family, having them watch emotional clips from children's movies, and getting them to repeat back a string of numbers. And we also had a, a physical challenge, which was a drop of lemon juice um, on the tongue. Um, so the, the highly sensitive kids were the kids um, who had the most response in these two primary uh, stress response systems in the human brain. And, the, and those are the, the cortisol system, and the other is the uh, fight-or-flight response the, uh, that's activated by the autonomic nervous system that involves sweaty palms and dilated pupils and uh, faster heart rate. And we found that it was a, really a bell-shaped curve. There were some kids who were very low in response in those challenges. Uh, there were a lot of kids in the middle, and there were a few kids at the very top. Nearly 20% of the children were highly sensitive, and slowly a pattern began to emerge. Most, although not all, were shy or introverted relative to other kids. Many had sensory hypersensitivities like taste or sound aversions, and they startled more easily. We began uh, studying this basically in the periphery of the body with things like measuring heart rate variability, blood pressure, um, things of that kind. But we have, uh, as a field, quickly moved back into the brain itself and even into the genome and find that there are differences in the actual DNA sequence um, that uh, are different among these kids with the high reactivity profiles. So it turns out that these highly sensitive children are not just acting fussy. They're hardwired to react to their environment more acutely. And they possess many gene variants that have been identified as markers related to health and social problems, like alcoholism and depression. Many of them are genes that are kind of the what we call the usual suspects in, uh, in psychiatric and mental health uh, disorders. So one is BDNF, the brain-derived uh, neurotropic um, hormone gene. 
another is the uh, dopamine receptor uh, gene. Um, another one is the serotonin transporter gene. So these are these are all genes that have to do with brain function and the uh, the uh, the connectivity and the the uh, level of activity of brain circuitry um, in response to the things that we experience day to day. Boyce and his team predicted that these high reactive kids would be at greater risk for physical and mental illness than their low reactive peers. And they were right. But here's where Boyce's research gets really interesting. In all of our studies, as we began uh, looking at this, we began to see that these high reactive children had either the worst outcomes when they were under conditions of of high stress or the best outcomes of any of the kids in the study uh, if they were in nurturant, supportive uh, kinds of settings. You heard that right. They had this this, uh, peculiar uh, kind of pattern of having uh, either the best or the worst outcomes depending upon the social context uh, that they were experiencing or being reared in. And those bad genes... Yeah, it turns out all, all of those genes that we thought might be bad guys are not always bad guys. Sometimes they're, they're good guys as well, which helps explain why they have persisted in the human uh, gene pool over, you know, eons of, of uh, human development and, and evolution. Boys and his partner dubbed these high reactive kids orchid children. It's a play on the Swedish term maskrosbarn, which I am probably mispronouncing. Maskrosbarn. But it means dandelion children which is used to describe low-reactive children who, just like a real dandelion, seem to thrive equally well regardless of their environment. Now, what makes this research so exciting and empowering is that it tells us that there's a lot we can do as caregivers to help orchid children blossom to their full potential. Rule number one is to realize that, that there are two sides to this orchid child coin. On the one hand, they are kids who can be at great risk under certain conditions, but they are also kids who have extraordinary abilities, extraordinary talents and capacities, and can be the healthiest of children um, if placed in uh, the right kind of environment and uh, treated with the right kind of uh, care and, and support. And Dr. Boyce should know, not only is he one of the foremost experts in the field of orchid children, he's also the father of one. My daughter, who has so many kids who are um, have the good or bad fortune of being the children of um, of scientists, uh, she was one of our guinea pigs and remains to this day the most reactive child that we ever um, tested in our laboratory. And she was a kid who just was very, very sensitive to all kinds of physical uh, stimuli. She hated having wrinkles in her socks when she when her shoes were put on and she had certain kinds of taste aversions that uh, things that she didn't like um, to eat or, or taste and she was she was also emotionally very uh, sensitive she um, has as she has grown and matured has a, a lot of empathic uh, compa- capacity and um, just is very responsive to the environment that she is uh, experiencing at any given moment in time. My wife and I um, both had a sense that this, uh, our, our daughter was um, a child uh, about whom great care needed to be uh, taken. 
And, you know, like many parents with these um, context-sensitive kids, we, we did uh, the best that we could. Part of that, says Boyce, is acknowledging that there are going to be physical sensitivities that these kids have, and they just need to be honored. You know, there's no sense sending a, an orchid child with her socks in a bunch um, in her shoes off to school that way because it's just not going to work. So you, you get it right, <laughs> and you understand that there are sensitivities that, that you as a parent uh, might not have, but this little girl or this little boy... Uh, does have, and it's important to um, to deal with those. But that doesn't mean that you have to treat them with kid gloves. You don't want to put an orchid child in an environment that's too threatening or too overwhelming, but it is important that even orchid kids are nudged into doing the kinds of things that will allow them to grow and thrive and to learn new things. So these are not bubble children that have to be um, encapsulated in uh, some kind of protective barrier. But the, the, the key and difficult decision often is when to push and when to not push. And that's, that's a decision that has to be made kind of on the ground or organically um, as these things happen. Personally, as someone who felt deeply about everything growing up and, um, and kind of um, uh, getting like generalized anxiety disorder from that, which I've never like admitted to anyone before, um, uh, you know, I can completely understand and relate to that. That's Scott Barry Kaufman, scientific director of the Imagination Institute in the Positive Psychology Center at the University of Pennsylvania. I grew up with a really, you know, a loving parent, but someone who was also very overprotective. I mean, up until like my senior year of high school, like my mom would drive me to the bus stop, you know, like which was literally down the street <laughs> when like was afraid of having me walk to the bus stop. I mean, some of these things are pretty obviously coddled, you know, like I, I didn't get a chance to experience failure that much. I didn't get a chance to experience, you know, these things because whenever things would be triggered, my mom would feel so bad about it and kind of try to shield the shield me from the world. And I won't I don't think that's necessarily the best route to take. Scott's sheltered childhood has given him special insight into his professional work as a psychologist. And we'll ask him when we return, what is the best way to parent a sensitive child? And what environment will help these orchid kids bloom? Plus, we'll give you tips on how to best nurture your sensitive child. That's all ahead. But first, a word about our sponsors. Are you interested in learning more about subjects like science, economics, or travel, but you don't know where to start? Sometimes it's difficult to know where to begin when it comes to learning about such broad topics. The Great Courses Plus video learning service is your solution. With the Great Courses Plus, you get unlimited access to a huge library of the Great Courses videos in subjects ranging from food to art and many more. You can watch an entire course start to finish or select the lectures from any course that you find most interesting. Express your artistic side with the Fundamentals of Photography course. Taught by National Geographic fellow Joel Sartori, this course will give you great advice on all aspects of photography. For a limited time, The Great Courses Plus is offering my listeners the chance to stream the Fundamentals of Photography, a $235 value, and hundreds of other courses for free. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash quiet. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash quiet. Also, if you're the parent of a quiet child ages three to nine, I'm so excited to tell you about a new online course we've created that I really think can change the way you parent your child. 
The course is beautiful and it includes all kinds of interactive features, like for example, a tool to help you decide when and when not to press your child out of her comfort zone, and scripts for how to advocate for your child with people who say he's too shy. And you'll also have the chance to interact with other parents of quiet kids. To check out the course, just visit learn.quietrev.com. And we're back. I'm Susan Kane, and this is Quiet, the Power of Introverts. Today, we're looking at how to parent the highly sensitive child. According to Dr. Thomas Boyce, nearly one in five kids are what he calls orchid children, those who are biologically predisposed to be highly sensitive. Like their namesake, orchid kids are exquisitely influenced by their environment. They're more sensitive to stress, but when conditions are right, they really thrive. So how can we raise these sensitive kids thoughtfully? As a once highly sensitive child himself, psychologist Scott Barry Kaufman has these insights. I think the best thing you can do is you know, show an awful lot of compassion and love, and love for your child and, and in very small doses you know, expose them to some of their worst fears and things um, in a safe environment and then you know, with love, with compassion and, and kind of build up and work your way up and show, that, show the child the world really isn't, isn't that bad, um, that the child can handle it and that the child can grow up to be a resilient adult. So that would be my deeply personal suggestion. Parent and author Priscilla Gilman agrees. But as she worked with her son, James, she found it wasn't always easy to step back. It was awful, wrenching. I'm sure all of you parents out there who have had to separate from your child and you see the crying and the the meltdowns and the hysteria, and it's just so painful. And having yourself as a parent to surmount that desire, that impulse, that urge to immediately go to their side and hug them or or to say, we can go home and take him away from a party where it's becoming overwhelming, right? Occasionally, you do have to do that. Uh, So the biggest challenge for me has been to learn how to support him, uh, to be there for him without judging him, but yet help encourage him not to just give up, but to hang in there and do the best that he can. And we can help best, says social anxiety specialist Dr. Franklin Schneier, if instead of trying to change our sensitive kids, we help them gain confidence in who they are. It looks like uh, parents who are more, both more accepting of their child's personality as a, as a, as a trait, not something to be judged, um, but also uh, help facilitate social interactions by helping the child gradually go into situations where they can master the situation. So not the most difficult situation, but maybe something that they're just on the edge of being able to get comfortable with. So a play date with one child instead of with five kind of very overactive kids might be a way to start in in that kind of situation. Um, And uh, encouraging the child with uh, encouraging thoughts about the situation, focusing on the positive, focusing on what they're able to do encouraging them to take some chances to try some things out and have a positive experience that they can then build on. There are a lot of strategies you can use to help an anxious child build confidence. Priscilla and James have been working on something called exposure therapy, which is really another name for the idea of desensitization that we talked about in a prior episode. Priscilla explains. One great strategy that his therapist gave him was ordering something that a store doesn't have and practicing embarrassment Um, When they tell you, I'm sorry, we don't carry that on our menu. So for example, we went to Dunkin' Donuts and he was told to order for his mother a venti coffee. Because Dunkin' Donuts doesn't doesn't 
qualify tall at de grande and then having to deal with the person in the stores looking at him with a perturbed expression and saying um that's starbucks and um practicing just that feeling of getting it wrong and making a mistake right deliberately and it was a great experience because he got through it the waiter was not as angry or upset as he feared the waiter would be and having experienced it and had that positive experience gives you confidence going forward making deliberate mistakes will help sensitive kids better cope when they make accidental mistakes but it won't change who they are and that says priscilla is a very good thing he's not broken he doesn't need to be fixed uh it's about just taking the edge off the anxiety to the point where he's able to participate in things that he wants to do and he feels confident saying no to things that just don't make him feel comfortable. It's also important to remember that you don't need to protect your child from every bump in the road. Instead, make sure to let them know that you support them and that you have confidence in their abilities. For Priscilla, this strategy has already worked well with her older son, Benjamin. I really, really believe strongly one of the most important things we can do as parents is identify those things that our kids really love to do and are good at doing and help support them in that. So Benj is now at the point where he had a lot of anxiety about performing in public. And it's been with him a process of kind of weaning off having to have another person there with him. Okay, so about four weeks ago, he performed a Bach piece in my mother's church as part of a Christmas celebration. He walked up to the front of the congregation, performed it all by himself, and did wonderfully. That confidence is what we all want for our kids. We just want them to see what we see. Remarkable young people who are full of potential. For the past nine episodes, we've talked about how you can better understand and help your introverted child, and we hope you've found something useful here. But if there's one message we want you to take with you as we finish up this season, it's about how powerful quiet can really be. And now it's time for some concrete tips to help your highly sensitive child bloom. But first, I want to tell you about a new book I have coming out this May for kids ages 9 to 12. It's called Quiet Power, and it's a look at all the topics we've covered in this podcast, but from a kid's point of view. We look at life in the school cafeteria, in the classroom, and after school with your friends. And now for today's tips. Number one, give your child alternative outlets for communicating with you, beyond just saying whatever's on his mind. Sensitive or introverted kids often process their thoughts internally, and they may be uncomfortable vocalizing their ideas, especially the ones that make them feel vulnerable. So give your kids art projects, diaries, puppets, and then listen carefully to see what they tell you through these media. Number two, declare victory. By this I mean that you should focus less on protecting your child from painful experiences than on providing positive ones, and then declaring victory when they happen. These victories don't need to be monumental. So your kid went to the birthday party, laughed at the magic show, sang happy birthday song... That's great. That's victory. Now you all get to go home and relax. Number three, don't overprotect. You really don't want to give your child the idea that the world is a dangerous place, or even more important, that you doubt his ability to handle its challenges. Remember that whatever you feel about your child internally will communicate itself one way or another. So you need to really have faith yourself that your child's going to be okay. Not just okay, that he can thrive just like all the other orchid children out there. So that's it for our show today. 
Quiet, the Power of Introverts was produced by Carrie Hillman in partnership with Andy Bowers and Laura Mayer of Panoply. This episode was edited by Christy Miners and mixed by Jason Gambrell. Our music was composed by Alexis Quadrado. Special thanks to everyone at Quiet Revolution. If you've enjoyed listening to Quiet, the Power of Introverts, please do be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment whenever you subscribe. I know it seems like a small thing, but it's really one of the best ways to help other people find our show. I'm Susan Kane. Thanks for listening. Are you ready to finally access your intuition, to dive deeper into your soul's purpose, to manifest abundance, joy, peace, and ease, and let it all be fun? Well, if so, come check out the Highest Self Podcast. It's the number one spirituality podcast, and now we're on video here on Spotify. My name is Sahara Rose. I'm here to be your spiritual bestie, and I can't wait to share my grounded approach to spirituality with you. So tune into Highest Self Podcast, and I'll see you there.